0: From the Gettysburgian and 91.1 WZBT Gettysburg, I'm Ben Ponce, and this is On Target.
1: I'm Gary Mangala, and today on Target, we will be discussing the recent retirement announcement of Jane North and recapping the news of the last few weeks.
0: Then we'll sit down with new Gettysburgian Opinions Editor Emily Dalgleish to talk about the state of the Democratic primary here in 2020. Stay with us. All right, let's get into the news. Gary's back.
1: Yeah, I'm not Mary. Correct. <laughs> you I'm once back. were lost. I once was lost and now I'm found.
0: Presumably, you are not blind and still can see.
1: Mm, amazing. Where were you? I was in Bath, England.
0: And what gave you the audacity <laughs> to abandon
1: Gettysburg College for four months? G- Gettysburg College or Ben Pons?
0: Well, either, I suppose.
1: I don't know, man. I just needed to get out for a little bit, and I did, and now I'm back. I'm happy to be back.
0: So how was Bath?
1: It was great. Um, it was definitely less cold. What? Others would say warmer. Yeah. Um, so Bath, England's kind of like in a valley of a bunch of mountains, so snow doesn't really reach the town. It kind of just, like, we get rain and stuff, but snow kind of dissipates
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, rather quickly. Also, by the time I, like, left, it was only getting, like, suit I left on December 14th, so it wasn't, like, super duper cold yet, which is good. I'm also, I was also in like the south of England, so it wasn't horrible. I came back and it was reasonably cold, um, which I wasn't prepared for.
0: It is indeed reasonably cold today as well. Yeah. So what were you doing, uh, like academically while you were in Bath, doing something with your highly employable theater major, perhaps?
1: <laughs> yeah, actually. Um, I took three classes, uh, two of which were, you know, like, like theater classes. And then I. Three t- whole classes? Well, and then I did an internship for a fourth class. Ah. Um, so I interned at a theater, um, basically working in front of house and like um, house management and things like that. And then I also volunteered at a different theater and was assistant stage managing a couple of shows, which are some of my first pers- uh, professional credits, which is really, really cool. Um, and then, you know, just taking in the city, uh, and seeing all, it's a really historic city, so going to museums and the Roman baths and things like that.
0: Most of Western Europe is old and thus historic, I
1: suppose. Definitely, but, like, we have ancient Rome kind of at our, our footsteps, right? Like, I would walk past the Roman baths on my way to school, which was really surreal, honestly.
0: And there were other Gettysburg students there?
1: Yeah, there were five other Gettysburg students there, um two of which are a part of the Gettysburg staff, Jackie Mcmowan and Katherine Scott who's our new co-features editor. Um Gettysburg was actually the largest represented college in my program of 42 students. Um
0: 5 out of 42, more than 10%. Six 6 out of 42, also more than 10%. Yeah. Um I
1: approaching think approaching 15%. Yeah, so the program runs through Franklin and Marshall, so that's probably part of it. Also like it's just
0: It's English speaking?
1: It's English speaking. Um, It's the program that the theater major specifically really does push. Also, um, we have professors that go there from time to time. Jack Ryan, who um, is the...
0: Vice Provost, Dean of Arts and Humanities. Thank you. Associate Professor of English, former Chair of the English <laughs> Department,
1: <laughs> former advisor of the Gettysburgian. Um, he was
0: shadow advisor to the Gettysburgian. <laughs> he
1: was the he was a tutor there this past summer, actually. So he took a couple of Gettysburg students with him for that. Um, so I think just in general, now, the tutor
0: in the English education system mm-hmm. is like professor.
1: Yeah. And then the term professor is more like chair. So professor is like a really, really haughty term over there. It's like, if you call, you call everybody by their first name over there, similar to like certain departments on this campus, but like calling somebody professor is like, like it's, it's a very large compliment and it's something that's kind of unearned. So you could call them doctor and that would be okay, but. Apparently, Professor was wrong. There was a lot of language barrier things to get over. They call umbrellas brawlies, which I I rather dislike. They call cardigans cardies. They don't like to say full words over there. And then they say that we don't speak proper English.
0: Well, you know, I'll restrict my anti-British sentiments. I for
1: mean, now. okay, for, like, for one thing, sidewalk versus pavement, that kind of, that whole thing. Uh, Shakespeare called it a sidewalk.
0: Well, you know. He was okay.
1: He was, he spoke the, like, the English English. So, but yeah, that was Bath. Um, Happy to be back. Mary's now abroad in... Hungary. Hungary. Budapest, to be exact. Yeah. Um, How was she while I was gone?
0: Well, obviously, you heard several of her... uh, Defenses. (laughs) Uh, For me. (laughs) And you sent in your own complaints Mm -hmm. about my highly accurate depictions of, you know, your major in things. Mm -hmm. So there's that.
1: Yeah, and yet you were so excited to have me back.
0: Well, you know, it's good to be able to verbally abuse people that are sitting right next to you (laughs) as opposed to having to do it from across an ocean. So there's that. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Okay, uh, so shifting gears to... (laughs) That was quite a segue. Uh, To the news. Mm -hmm. Today, Tuesday, the 21st, uh, Jane North, the executive vice president, of Gettysburg College, who oversees uh, HR and risk management, announced that she will retire in May. Gary, I know you worked with for Jane over the summer.
1: Yeah, talk a little about talk
0: a little bit about you know Jane and what she's done at Gettysburg College.
1: Yeah, um, I worked with Jane. Um, essentially, she was head of the inauguration. Planning. I believe you're referring
0: to the installation.
1: Mm, we use the words interchangeably while I was there. You have to understand that President I was... Bob
0: does not use them interchangeably. But yeah. anyway.
1: Well I did. Um so I'm gonna say inauguration because I actually planned it. <coughs> um yeah. So she was kind of head of all I would say the committee, but anybody who worked in the planning of it knows that there's about eighteen subcommittees. Um but Jane was basically overseeing all of it. Uh and that was most of the capacity I worked for. She technically paid me. Um, it was her budget. So I'm thankful for that. Um, and Jane also just is, because Jane's been here for so long, she kind of is able to act as a historian to a lot of different uh, things that have happened on campus. So I was um, primarily in charge of researching past traditions um, from different installations and, you know, going to the library and to special collections and reading up on it. But uh, Jane also provided a really good context because she's seen, you know, four or five presidents throughout her time at Gettysburg. And she's also put through kids, two kids through um, the college. So, I'm, um, you know, you don't you don't do all that without getting to know the school very, very well.
0: Yep, She is finishing her 32nd uh, mm-hmm. year, began in 1986. There was a brief respite in there when she did not work for the college. But otherwise, it's been there since. Yeah. I worked with Jane a little bit. Um, during, I guess it's over. I I guess we're calling the presidential transition done transitioned, but I worked with Jane a little bit during the presidential transition team, Mm -hmm. um, or as we called it, the PTPC presidential (laughs) transition planning committee, um, notably Bob, president Bob, uh, in his email to campus announcing Jane's departure. Uh, noted the many committees that she has led. Mm -hmm. Um, I have often joked that she is the chief uh, CCO, the chief committee officer Mm -hmm. of Gettysburg College. Um, And I think that that is a fairly accurate depiction of her role here. Uh, She led and and brought into the president's office HR uh, and risk management, something that is kind of unusual, but that um, as we published earlier today, President Janet Morgan Riggs certainly found value in, um, and so the other the, the interesting thing moving forward, uh, and Bob alluded to this um, in his message to campus will be how um, she decides he decides excuse me to replace her functions, um, and he kind of alluded that it's unlikely to be one person um, that that you know becomes the new Jane North in charge of. Know, executive vice president mm-hmm. uh, in addition to HR and risk management I would say that many presidents um, of colleges of our size have a chief of staff that is kind of in the in the vein of of what she does or part of what she does I would if I were a betting person I would bet that's the direction we head perhaps someone with you know a legal or accounting mm-hmm. sort of background um, and then I would imagine that HR might move back into kind of a more traditional hierarchy, maybe within finance or administra- finance and administration, that division, or perhaps as a direct report to the president. Certainly, uh, Bob has shown a proclivity to create new direct reports. Jamie Yates, executive director of communications and marketing, is now a direct report to the president. So we'll see what happens. He said um, that he'll make some decisions, uh, make some announcements rather, in the coming weeks. I will say that it represents yet another position on president's council, um, that he will be charged to fill. Mm-hmm. He hired uh, a new vice president of development in the fall. He's currently, well, he's going to have to hire a vice president of enrollment, um, and perhaps also the educational services kind of tandem that Barbara Fritz has led. And now an executive vice president, chief of staff, sort of senior, that position was formerly known as executive assistant. Um, Julie Ramsey held that position under Gordon Holland, as did Janet Morgan
1: Riggs. Yeah, uh, and I think on top of, like, thinking about the president's counsel, Jane in some ways was also responsible for kind of the organization of meeting between them all. Obviously, Bob is in in charge. JMR was in charge of it. Um, But in some ways, Jane did uh, oversee a lot of the logistics of it. So it's going to be interesting to see how that takes shape in her absence. I think in general, she was, you know, a logistics person. Obviously, Bob's in charge in a lot of ways, but she helped sort out so much stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to kind of think of her as a COO type, a chief operations officer. She did yeah. a lot of, you know, she was an, an institutionalist um, in a lot of ways who, who oversaw some of the things that really just didn't fall under anyone else. She did some community relations mm-hmm. kind of at the, the CEO level that wasn't really part of communications and marketing's purview. So... Many functions to fill, not exactly a, a neat array of functions to fill. Mm-hmm. So I'd say it's fairly likely that it'll take more than one person to at least fill some of those functions.
1: It's going to be interesting, I think, to see if any of those people that take over any of those functions are outside hires just because <coughs> so much of what Jane does Uh, has to do a lot of the fact that she really does know Gettysburg. Um, And while an outside hire would obviously provide a new and interesting take on things, uh, it's probably a very difficult role to just jump into.
0: Yeah, and Julie Ramsey, when she was in that position, uh, was new to Gettysburg College. Janet Morgan Riggs obviously was not. Jane North obviously is not. So see what happens. If If I were a betting person, doing a lot of betting on this episode, Mm. I would guess that at least one new person from the outside will inherit at least part of that portfolio, but I would also imagine that there may be some promoting from within to fill some of those functions. Yeah. So, that's one big story. What else has been going on at Gettysburg College in the last, I don't know, it's been a while since you've been here. Yeah,
1: I don't think I'm the person to ask. Um, To pivot, what's been happening in the last few weeks at Gettysburg College, Ben?
0: Well, thanks for asking, Gary. You're welcome. Uh,
1: Over the holiday break,
0: some... Well, actually, the last day I was on campus during the fall semester, I received an apology letter from the... uh, from the Phi Delta Theta Fraternity. Oh,
1: yeah. This was interesting.
0: A mandated apology, not to <laughs> the Gettysburgian, but for publication yeah. in the Gettysburgian, wherein they apologized for, uh, I believe, the verb of their choice, uh, or perhaps if the college's directive, was <laughs> blasting um, yeah. the purge siren, which is from um, the mo- uh, a movie yeah. franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, during a power outage in October, Um your, the 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 interim host that filled that seat while you were away uh, was among those who was alarmed
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, upon hearing it. I'm curious, though, from your perspective, you were abroad. What did you kind of make of that story as it was happening? Much ado about nothing or getting to some, you know, perhaps underlying concerns about Greek life and kind of how... Uh, it, it approaches its responsibilities towards campus.
1: It was interesting because when I first heard about it, I was like, I'm someone who's seen all of the Purge films. So um, I would have recognized I would have recognized to be clear. Them.
0: I'm not. I've seen like five movies in my life.
1: Yeah. So I think when I first heard it, I recognized it from a context of um, having seen the films, but also. Right. For me, uh, the last film that came out of it, of the series, had a lot of racial connotations, um, basically blaming a figmented NRA type figure for like trying to ethnically cleanse a very like black and Hispanic population of the United States. So when I saw that, I, I was taking it a different direction, but then Later on, as I was reading your coverage of it and also like talking to you about it, understanding that people didn't really know what it was. They just heard a siren. And for anyone who has seen the movie, like it is a very like uh, it was it's a very well composed siren for the films because it's supposed to be very anxiety inducing and like murder is now legal. Like that's the whole premise. And that if I hadn't known what it is and I heard that, I would immediately think like something That's never happened before Is happening because it's a really alarming sound. And it's not one we hear on Gettysburg College's campus. We don't really have sirens that we hear within the school.
0: Right. We have an emergency siren, but we rarely test it.
1: Exactly. And I doubt it sounds like that. It would sound like a normal emergency siren. So I think that I get that. It would... I don't know. You would immediately think like there's a bomb threat or like there's like a like a tornado or something. And more than all of that, I think my issue with it in terms of like a Greek life thing is just the idea of the sound pollution of Greek life ha- at times has gotten to be a lot. Um I know a few years back we had an issue of um I believe it was Sigma Kai blasting uh like some compilation of Trump on their like DJ speakers, which are loud enough to protrude outside and to other houses nearby. And they did to um, Hillel and uh, D house and Q house. And that became a whole thing. But I think my issue with it is that I understand that you have this like technological setup that allows you to blast music for your parties. But I don't think I don't think it's appropriate for you to blast it any more than that because not only did kids hear the sirens, but, like, kids were probably studying, honestly. I, I should say students. um, but students were probably studying and I, or sleeping or sleeping or whatever you're doing. And I just don't think that that's respectful. And it's not, and it's not like they were playing music and it got too loud. Like that was a choice that they made. Um, so more than just the fear it inside in campus, I think it's just another situation where in which, like, I understand, I understand the perspective of Greek students feeling as though they've been alienated from the rest of the campus and they're hated or whatever. But then when you do things like that, that's why, you know, it's, it's irritating. And I probably, I don't think I would have been scared like Mary was because I would have recognized it again, but I think I would have been probably like pissed off. And I think that that's just as valid of an emotion to feel about it as being terrified
0: right i mean i didn't hear it live i you live live in seminary live up at the seminary so it was pretty far away but when some folks on our staff some of whom are members of greek life uh recounted that incident it struck me as just kind of reinforcing a perception of boorishness yeah that that i think incidents like this might suggest is not entirely unearned um you We'll say, though, that ultimately I don't particularly care, um, but when when the um, Greek organization comes to me two months after with a mm-hmm. uh, one-paragraph apology that they want me to print without context, um, no, that's not how a newspaper is going to operate. Um, so, yeah, we are going to provide some context about that story, and we did. And there was some um, some flack about that. Uh, I'm okay. You know, benpontsucks.com was uh the name that someone put on the Virgin's website as their yeah. name um to that person you use your real email um to submit that comment so like I don't know if you're gonna be a jerk maybe be better at not being you know so obvious but
1: yeah like ben Ponce does suck.com but like not for that you know
0: I just say I, I think there are plenty of reasons you could say that I suck but
1: yeah. I don't think that's
0: necessarily one
1: of them. I was probably one of the closest people to Ben. I promise you he does suck, and you're correct in that, but doing his job is not one of them. Also, like, beyond defending Ben, because that's not my job or whatever.
0: Feel free, though. You know, anytime <laughs> any time, you're welcome to. Yeah,
1: sure. Um, more than that, uh, how do I say this? Your choices do matter. Um, what you do does matter, and then you don't get to blame people that, you know, have to report on your decisions yeah, if there was a grievance
0: about accuracy, okay,
1: but there wasn't. Like it's, I understand the perception. I truly understand the perception of uh, get it, the Gettysburgian being like anti-Greek life. I get where that's coming from. I'm dating a person in Greek life who has said to me multiple times, like, if something happens, like just don't report on it, please. But at the same time, like that's my job and that's what I'm going to do. <coughs> But on the other end of the spectrum, like I just said, I'm dating someone in Greek life. So I see it both ways. There are Greek people on staff. I have friends that are in Greek life and I do see positives to it. I think the philanthropy efforts are far more than anything I personally contribute to the like college society or just like the greater community of like humanity in general. I don't organize charity events. So I, I have a lot of respect for that. I also have a lot of respect for just the time that people put in to it. But when you're doing something that's just like frankly just public indecency and being a public nuisance it's less that i have a problem with like you for being greek and more that i just have a problem with your decisions like as a person it's the same way i feel where you know when it's like derby days or something and everyone's drunk and servo like just just don't um if you're going to get drunk like just don't be a nuisance to everybody because it's it's just disrespectful and in the real world you, in the real world you can't do that and blame it on your friends.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in this case, they broke the law. They got caught breaking the law. Yeah. (laughs) There's a noise ordinance and they apologized. I mean, I think I don't have any more plans to report on it than that, but it seems like that every time something like this happens, more attention is drawn to it by just the visceral hemming and hawing uh, about how it gets covered, which is Generally, just a pretty simple statement of the facts. So there's that. Uh, Other news that happened while we were away, um, right before we left, Mm -hmm. uh, the college announced a new vice president of development, Mm -hmm. Trace Mullis, uh, who's coming to the college from Washington and Lee University, where, incidentally, I just got into law school. Um,
1: Congratulations. I didn't know that.
0: It happened about six hours ago. So, you know, there's that. Uh, my father's alma mater, so there's that. That's kind of cool. This is really not, this is really beside the point. But in any case, uh, Trace Mullis will begin February the 7th. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, that date right there that I just said very mm. clearly. He'll begin in February.
1: He's British, isn't he? Didn't you tell he me has that?
0: A, he has a very pleasant British sounding accent. I don't know if he's actually That's like British. gotten
1: Americanized, I guess.
0: Well, we'll have him on the podcast and let yeah. everyone be the judge. I'll ask. His son is a Gettysburg College student, uh, first year at that. So he's got dad coming to report directly to the president. Yeah. I'm sure he's thrilled.
1: That would be interesting. Like you gr- you go to a college because I'm assuming he he must have gotten in before.
0: Yeah, I don't think he knew that his father would be coming here mm-hmm. uh, by the time that he decided to himself because, well, I guess the job potentially had been posted no, it wouldn't have been posted by then because Bob did this search himself, and he didn't start till July. So,
1: yeah, he would have declared, and he would have at least applied. Yeah, um, that's an interesting take. i I'll, I'll be interested to see how he feels about that.
0: Well, we can ask, I suppose. My watch is beeping. Who knows why? Maybe it's a signal that we've reached the end of this news segment. <laughs> uh,
1: Do you plan that in case our segment ran long? You just set an alarm.
0: No, that was an alarm that was supposed to wake me up last night when I was taking a short nap, and I instead uh, just slept from 9 p.m. to 7.30 a.m., which was super great and did not set me behind on anything.
1: It's 9.55 right now, so you had an alarm set for, like, 9.55?
0: Yeah, I mean, I lied down for a nap around 9 o'clock p.m.
1: So why wouldn't you set the alarm for 10 p.m.?
0: Because I had a second alarm set for 10, but... (gasps) on my phone. Um, and well, obviously neither of them serve their intended function. Mm.
1: So I do have something I want to talk to you about. Oh boy. So I've been, I've been having this kind of, it's, it's kind of like a joke bit thing, but it's kind of also just some, like this interesting social experiment I've been doing, I've been collecting, um, low key serial killer traits. So things that later on when someone ends up being a serial killer, it's Oh, like that's, that was the first sign. Like, Are you uh, suggesting I'm going to be a serial killer? No, no, no. I'm saying that like you setting an alarm on your watch, first of all, because it's 2020 is weird. And the 955 thing makes you serial killer. But that's something I do too. I set alarms for like really weird times. But one that I have thought about a lot is, and I'll ask you the question now, do you put it sock, sock, shoe, shoe on or sock, shoe, sock, shoe?
0: Sock, sock, shoe, shoe.
1: Okay. I know people that put sock shoe, sock shoe, and I think it's a serial killer trait. Your thoughts? Well,
0: I mean, those people sound fairly dangerous and perhaps need to be, um... Watched. Yeah. Watched. We'll go with that. Mm. Okay. Well, now that we've taken this on a totally creepy way to end, uh, talking about serial killers, I'm sure you're glad to have Gari back. I, you know... I sure am. So (laughs) with that, we'll wrap up our news segment. We'll be right back with the bullet report. I apologize for my voice. I'm going to do more inflection like this throughout the remainder of the podcast because it sounds like I'm excited. Here we go. Bullet report coming up right after this. And now it's time for the bullet report. On January the 4th, the men's wrestling team finished 10th out of 10 at the Washington and Lee Invitational. The men's wrestling team finished 11th out of 16 at the Waynesburg Invitational the same day. The women's basketball team defeated her sign as 64-61. The men won 63-52 over McDaniel on the 4th. On the 9th, the wrestling team lost to Oneona 38-9. The men's basketball team defeated her sign as 78-66. The women's basketball team defeated Bryn Mawr 78-25 on the 9th. On January the 11th, the men's wrestling team lost to Johns Hopkins 27-19. The women's basketball team defeated Haverford 69-64, while the men lost 94-65 to the same team the same day. The men's wrestling team defeated Delaware Valley 36-17 The women's swimming team defeated Catholic 204-58 The men won 182-79 on the 12th On the 15th, the women's basketball team defeated Dickinson 62-52 The men's basketball team defeated Dickinson 68-49 The men's wrestling team defeated Penn College 25-22 Hunter 30-27 And lost to NYU 38-8 on the same day On January the 18th, the women's basketball team defeated Washington College of Maryland 83-53 The men lost in double overtime, 100-99. The men's wrestling team defeated Thaddeus Stevens, 57-0. Thus endeth the Bullet Report. We'll be right back with Emily Dalgleish. And we're pleased to be joined today by Emily Dalgleish, the new opinions editor of the Gettysburgian a member of College Democrats, a Democrat. Hi, Emily. Thanks Hi. Thanks for being here.
2: <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: So why don't we start with the, uh, you know, those Democrats. So we're recording this on Tuesday, the 21st of January. I believe the Iowa caucuses are two weeks from today. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Uh, or from yesterday.
0: From, yes.
2: Are they on Monday this they year? They
0: are. Wow. Those Democrats and getting last, out on a Monday.
1: And the last debate was less than a week ago, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or one week ago.
0: And so some recent events, Cory Booker has dropped out of the race. The New York Times has endorsed kind of, well, <laughs> two candidates, uh, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. I know I saw a photo of you with Elizabeth Warren recently. Yes. So if at any point you'd like to just jump in and share some of your <laughs> thoughts, have at it.
2: Okay. Uh, yeah, so the... Iowa caucuses are coming up very soon, and it's been very exciting. I actually got to spend two weeks in Iowa, which is how I met Elizabeth Warren, um, caucusing, or not caucusing, canvassing, uh, knocking on doors, um, and calling voters in Iowa. So it's definitely very exciting right now. There's a lot of energy in Iowa and I think nationwide, um, and a lot of undecided people and a lot of decided people. Um, So I think everyone's kind of looking towards November as they're making their decision, um, but no one's really sure who the best candidate will be for November. Yes, I saw a
0: poll that said something like more than half of voters still have not decided. Yeah. And we're now two weeks away. Uh, So you were canvassing for Elizabeth Warren.
2: Yes. You met
0: Elizabeth Warren. What do you think some of her strengths as a candidate are?
2: I think one of her greatest strengths is I think she has the ability to kind of bring the two wings of the democratic party together um, she has a lot of very progressive fans but also has some more moderate older supporters as well and is kind of able to branch those sides of the party um, and i think that her policies focus on issues that a lot of americans care about not just progressive democrats um, specifically corruption and taxes to pay for the different programs that we need and um, also kind of to offset the deficit. So those are things that I think a lot of people care about and her message resonates with a lot of people. Um, And she has just incredible energy and an ability to excite people as well um, about policy. She's been able to have people chant two cents at her rally. So if you can get people chanting about tax policy, that's something pretty special.
0: Yeah, so the New York Times labeled her a radical. Do you agree with that characterization?
2: I don't agree with that characterization. I think radical is a strong word for someone whose platform represents um, a lot of ideas that a uh, majority of Americans believe in now. So I don't necessarily think that radical is the right term for that.
0: And of course, they labeled her a radical in juxtaposition to Amy Klobuchar as a realist. Uh, what's your sense of the Klobuchar campaign in Iowa? It seems that it's gotten uh, not a lot of national media attention, but she certainly seems to be throwing many of her eggs in the proverbial Iowa basket.
2: Yeah, I think that all the candidates are kind of focused on Iowa right now, um, and she does have support there, so it's kind of interesting to see where she will land. Um, Definitely not as much support as the top four candidates, and it'll be interesting to see if she is even viable in a lot of caucus rooms, um, because that could be something that happens as well, is that she doesn't even get any viability during Iowa.
0: So explain what that means. What does it mean to be viable in a caucus?
2: In a caucus, everyone... Is in one room. It's not a secret ballot. Everyone is in public. Um, so you stand in a different corner of the room depending on which candidate you support. And then at that first count, if the candidate does not meet 15% of attendees in that room supporting the candidate, um, then they aren't viable and those uh, caucus goers need to find a new candidate to support. So if Globotar was to not reach 15% in one room, all of her supporters would have to find someone else to support and she wouldn't receive any delegates for that um, precinct.
0: And so it's at the precinct level. So hypothetically, you know, she will likely, I'm sure many candidates will likely be not viable in some precincts and viable and perhaps even win others.
2: Yes. Yeah. It all depends on the neighborhood and um, who shows up and where people have been knocking on doors and talking to voters and it really does depend from place to place.
0: So having been on the ground in Iowa, what do you make of those caucuses as a way to, uh, you know, winnow the field of candidates? Is that is it, you know, good for democracy?
2: It's kind of a mixed bag. On one hand, you are with all your neighbors and you get to discuss what matters to you and why each candidate represents that. So in a way, it's very democratic, but at the same time, um, it's very difficult for certain people to come to uh, just because of the time and working conditions. Or uh, There are many barriers to prevent people from showing up on a Monday night um, to stand in front of all their neighbors and Move around a room, sometimes it can take a very long time. Um, So, on one hand, I think it can be a really great test for the candidates about whether they can connect with people and get them to show up. Um, But at the same time, it can prevent a lot of people from participating.
1: So, uh, last week was the last debate between uh, five of the candidates, I believe. And uh, I think my favorite part was when Elizabeth Warren pointed out. was talking about how she had said that Bernie Sanders had told her that a woman would not become president of the United States, and she pointed out that um, the men on stage had lost collectively ten elections, and the woman on women on stage, she was just Klobuchar and herself, had never lost one. Um, for you, in this,
0: to be fair, the sample size of that comparison, you know, <laughs> as she is a big numbers person, you would have think she would have shared the denominator, but yeah, I digress.
1: Yeah, but she she pointed that out, and I think. Uh, the audience really was laughing at that. But for you, do you think it is viable that um, a woman could win the candidacy in this election?
2: I think it's definitely a possibility. Um, In 2008, nobody thought Obama could win, and Iowa was kind of the deciding point for that election. And then in 2016, no one thought Trump would win the primary, no one thought he would win the general election. Um, So these typically unelectable candidates keep winning, and so... Looking at our traditional expectations of what it means to be electable, whether that's like a moderate older white man or um, whatever your definition of electability is, we keep saying that that may not be true. Um, And it is true that maybe gender could be used as a weapon in the general election or it definitely would be used as a weapon, um, but pretty much anything will be. And so these women who have been candidates for a long time and have lived in that political world understand how that happens and are prepared to address it as it comes up.
0: Yeah, surprisingly enough, the candidate with the most votes wins in each state uh, to (laughs) the electability point. Uh, You you alluded a second ago to an old white uh, moderate man being kind of the picture of what electability looks like. There is one of those in the race. Uh, His name is Joe Biden, of course. (laughs) What's kind of your sense of his candidacy and why maybe he hasn't caught on, uh, at least at the kind of fundraising level, he's lagging behind other candidates in fundraising. Why do you think that might be?
2: I think a lot of people like him. I don't think a lot of people love him. So a lot of people say, I know Joe Biden. Yeah, I support him. He's a great guy. Um, but there are less people who are saying, yeah, I will give $20. I'll give $3. I'll give $100 to Joe Biden. And less people who want to go knock doors for him, less people who are willing to volunteer their time for him. So though I think he has really broad support. The depth of that support is somewhat limited. And that is kind of reflected in his fundraising numbers and in his overall success in general.
0: And the other old, white, not-so-moderate candidate is, of course, Bernie Sanders, Um, and he, as we alluded to earlier, has been embroiled in, scandal might be a little bit of a strong word, a snafu, perhaps, with the Warren campaign, and of course, today, uh, or perhaps it was yesterday, Hillary Clinton uh, was quoted as saying that nobody likes Bernie Sanders and he's an unelectable old codger, and so what do you kind of make of the Sanders campaign these days?
2: I think a lot of people really like Bernie Sanders, and he does have that depth of support. um, And there are a lot of people really willing to go and work for him, donate to him. Uh, He has a very strong campaign. Um, In some ways, he has kind of a similar excitement and unconditional support that some Trump supporters have um, towards Trump. And so I think that's interesting as well to watch that play out, um, whether that's negative or positive. um, He definitely has this very strong base um, and gets people very excited about his platform as well.
1: Uh, Someone who has seemingly gotten some support also from Trump supporters and has had a very interesting, I think, campaign season has been Andrew Yang, uh, who has had a bit of some beef with MSNBC over the past few months uh, and has kind of brought to light, I think, the 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 real issue with money and how that relates to being able to really be seen in a campaign of this size. Uh, what do you make of the smaller Democratic candidates that are, aren't are getting stage time during this election?
2: I think their voices still are important in the election. Um, I think Andrew Yang brings a lot of different ideas to the table. He does talk about universal basic income as his major um, idea, which I think is something that not a lot of other candidates are talking about, um, And he also talks about kind of the changing job market and how Americans kind of need to be prepared for that and how we need to um, reshape our economy preparing for that as well, which I think is an interesting point. So there are a lot of candidates who are not polling very well, are not making the debate stage, but still have ideas that they're kind of bringing to the stage and are allowing other candidates to address and think about as well. So I think it's been a positive thing overall to have a lot of different people um, in this race, even though a lot of them obviously um, won't make it to the end. (laughs) That's a way to put it.
0: <laughs> what do you kind of make of the way the DNC has tried to filter who has gotten into the debates? Some have said that it has kind of reoriented the way the campaigns operate, just to try and get as many one and five dollar donations as they can, and that that's not ultimately a very efficient approach. Um, but on the flip side, there were those who, uh, in twenty uh, in twenty sixteen, accused the DNC of rigging the primary in favor of a preferred candidate. So, how do you what do you kind of make of the way that Tom Perez and others have, have tried to kind of, you know, play that, play that field?
2: I think the DNC is trying to set their qualifications based off of their history and research. So looking at how far candidates have made it in past elections, and if you're not pulling at a certain percent at a certain point, then you're pretty much not going to win at all. So there's not really a need for you to be on the debate stage. And as far as the donations, I think they're trying to uh, address the idea that A lot of Democrats are changing the way they're campaigning towards focusing on smaller donations um, rather than just racking in a lot of money. Um, So looking at candidates who are able to excite a lot of people enough to donate them rather than just who are able to talk to a few people who will donate a lot. So rather than looking at the total fundraising number, looking at the people who are donating.
0: Of course, there were six candidates on the last debate stage and they were all white people.
2: Yeah, and I think that is a reflection of our campaign system still, and who is able to get media attention, who is able to get donations, um, and I think that is reflected as well.
0: One candidate who has not tried at all to get on the debate stage, but who has flooded the TV airwaves, uh, is Michael Bloomberg, and perhaps also to a lesser extent, Tom Steyer, although he has made it to the debate stage, um, and in fact was polling uh, second in a South Carolina poll a couple weeks ago, which is something. Uh, But Let's talk about Bloomberg for a second. What do you kind of make of his uh, strategy and how he's circumventing some of the early states? You know, some have said these early states are not, you know, the foremost representative states to start with, Uh, you know, speaking of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina and Nevada.
2: Right. I don't think Bloomberg would be in this race if he didn't see a path to victory. I don't quite see it yet. But if he keeps flooding the airwaves, like you said, as he's doing now, um, he definitely is changing the numbers game a little bit and changing the support. And it also makes me wonder if the DNC will change their qualifications as he has one donor and it's himself. Um, So he will never make the debate stage with the current qualifications. Um, But if he does become a popular candidate just due to his amount of advertising, then that could change as well. Um, as a field person, as someone who loves organizing, I do question his ability to do so well if most of his money is towards advertising and less towards organizers, though he does have plenty of those as well. Um, I think he will lack support if he's funding only.
0: Well, and he has said that he's building up a big organization that he will give to whomever the winner the winner ultimately is.
1: Do you, I, in our college uh, sphere, we have this kind of, I think, There's a there's a notion of the eat the rich uh, ideology within Democrats right now, especially with um, Jeff Bezos and just like a lot of other billionaires and just the taxation. Do you think that someone like Michael Bloomberg will be able to supersede that mentality? No,
2: (laughs) I don't. (laughs) Frankly, no, I think he is strongly disliked by a lot of people our age and a lot of people in general um, and Tom Steyer as well for going on stage Mm -hmm. and saying, That they're anti-billionaire and as billionaires and extremely rich people talking about taxing the rich, I think people can't really trust that idea. And so I think they do will lack a lot of support just for that reason due to the amount of money that they have and the amount of money they're spending on this race.
1: Mm I know that um, the midterms, the midterm elections at Gettysburg College were probably um, a really active time for college Dems, the most active time that I've seen uh, during my time here. Uh, What what is the college Dems effort this semester and possibly also um, next fall in terms of the election?
2: We have a lot planned. It's very exciting. Um, We definitely want to replicate what we did in 2018 and take it further, Um, definitely registering people to vote and getting out the vote for the midterms, or not the midterms, excuse me, the general election uh, for president and also for the primaries now. Um, So this semester during our meetings we'll have – different organizations within the club for the different candidates, and they can organize on their own, talk about the different things that they want to do so that everyone can kind of support their own candidate as we move through the primary process. And then, of course, everyone will be on the same page once the candidate is chosen. And so when we come back to school in the fall, we'll have a big effort to get out the vote and um, get everyone excited for 2020. How has that been
1: so far? I know that you guys just got back, but even with last semester, how has that been so far being in, you know, college Dems? At this point right now, like, a lot of you must be divided in who your candidate that you wish to get the candidacy is.
2: I think what's been really interesting to see is last semester um, and maybe less this semester, but everyone was really undecided and kind of changing every week in who they're supporting, Um, not because there weren't good options, but because there are a lot of good options. So when there are disagreements in who you support, it's not that you dislike the person that the other person is supporting, but it's that um, you just kind of see a different pathway to presidency. And so people really like all the candidates. It's not a very hostile environment right now. It's a pretty exciting environment. So everyone's organizing for their own person or excited about their own person, um, but not necessarily negative towards other people's candidates. You you keep referring to this pathway to the presidency. And I, I, I understand
1: that you're uh, everybody's kind of It's less about who you really like, and it's more about who can beat Donald Trump. Um, And in that way, do you think that um, this vote will be less reflective of who people actually want as
2: president? I'm not sure. I think it depends on how people think about electability and if they vote based on their own definition of electability or if they vote for who they like. I think it could go either way. Um, And I think a lot of people choose a candidate they like and convince themselves that they're the most electable. And so they think that they're casting a vote for the most electable person when it could just be a reflection of who they really like. So I'm not sure how that'll turn out, but I think electability and beating Donald Trump is the number one issue on every Democrat's mind right now.
0: Do you have confidence that Democrats, both on the Gettysburg College campus and more broadly, will coalesce around a single candidate? Uh, one candidate we haven't talked about is Pete Buttigieg. There's just a piece in Politico about how young people in particular seem to have a lot of pent-up hostility towards his sort of, you know, perfect resume, so to say. Do you think that Democrats will ultimately uh, avoid some of the, the animosity that, that plagued the party in 2016?
2: Yes. I think that there will still be a little bit of a mess trying to all get behind one person, but Everyone knows the risk of what happened in 2016 and knows it could happen again in 2020, which is losing to Donald Trump. And so even with those frustrations towards the different candidates, I think everyone is ready to kind of get on board um, and kind of close their mouth if they don't really agree and are ready to still make that vote, even if it means they are not voting for their number one favorite, but just voting for someone who they know will be better than what we have currently.
1: So are you saying that you, you think that during the general election, there'll be far less right at uh, right ends <coughs> for uh, democratic
2: registered voters? I really hope so. I've stopped trying to predict what will happen because I really have no idea, but I, I hope so.
0: And, uh, p- excuse me, and pivoting for a second. Uh, You're now the opinions editor of the Gettysburg, and we've just spent uh, about 20 minutes talking about opinions. Uh, So would you like to make a pitch for people to submit their opinions about the election and how they can do that?
2: Yes. So obviously there's a lot happening right now. There are a lot of different things to have opinions about, whether that be your favorite candidate or the policies that they're talking about or your least favorite candidate and the policies that they're talking about as well. So I would love to hear them and love we'll to publish those as well. So please send them to my email um, and I will make sure that we can include all opinions. Obviously, I talked about how I support a candidate and I'm a Democrat, but I would like to hear anyone's opinion and share those as well.
1: Including those that want to see re-election for Donald Trump. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. Emily Doglish. thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. On Target for this week, we'd like to thank Emily Dalgleish for being our featured guest today.
1: We'd also like to thank the Executive Board of WZBT and the staff of the Gettysburgian for their ongoing support in this project. Please be sure to subscribe to On Target on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: On Target is a joint production of the Gettysburgian and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, a 2019 graduate of the Sunderman Conservatory of Music, currently pursuing a Master's of Music Composition. Join us next week. I'm not yet sure who our guest will be, But I'm sure it'll be great. Until then, have a great week and stay welcome.